In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, last week we wrapped up with uh, a thorough analysis and discussion on reconciliation, like the concept of um, being reconciled with, with God, right? Yes? No? Yeah. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> um, I wanted to make sure that everyone is up to pace and clear on what we uh, concluded with this concept of reconciliation. So if you have any questions before we move on, feel free to ask now or forever hold your peace. So it's not solely to address a specific heresy, it's more so a, 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 an epistle of encouragement, but it's also to admonish the Colossians against this, uh, this sort of paganism or, or idolatry, because they, they worship the angels and they thought that, um, that, that the angels were higher than their actual rank. So this was a part of the, the misunderstanding that St. Paul is trying to correct. So that's why he's telling the Colossians that Christ is the center. Christ is God. He is the authority. He is everything. And, uh, you know, when he says Christ is all in all, you know, that, that whole theme, that, it'll come in the next chapter as well, but that whole theme is pretty much what the epistle is about. Does that make sense? Okay. Um... I'm getting a lot of blank stares when uh, I, I said reconciliation. So, does anybody want to give me like a two-second recap on what that means before we move on? I know a couple of people missed last week, so that's okay. But for the um, for the rest of you guys that were here, you have no excuses. So what is like an essential foundation in, in this process of bringing humanity back to be reconciled with God? Christ to come humanity in himself. Okay, perfect. So the incarnation is basically like the essence of our reconciliation because we are in him and in his victory as Christ overcomes death and uh, resurrects from the dead then we are resurrected with him and we are reconciled to the Father. So that's essentially what this whole concept is about. It's about our unity with Christ and about the, the, the fact that we receive life from the work of Christ himself because we are in him. Okay, So we are in him and because we are in, in him all that he does is translated to us. Okay? So, we wrapped up with this whole concept and we said that 
uh, we, we briefly just touched on this. We said that we were alienated, alienated and enemies in what? In our, we're in verse 21. It says, you were once alienated and enemies in your, in your mind, right? So our reconciliation is essentially like a process of repentance. Um, what does the, the word repentance literally mean? To turn back. To turn back. Practically that's what it means, but literally what does it mean? So the Greek is metanoia, right? What's meta? Not like meta world peace. <laughs> meta, like metamorphosis. So you turn, right? Yeah, but let's break down the actual etymology. What is the word that prefix meta? Change. Change, perfect. Like metamorphosis, to change in morphology, in shape. Right? So the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Metamorphosis. So meta means change. Now what's noia? Comes from the word gnosis. Or the noose. The mind. Perfect. Okay, so meta noia is change, change of mind. Okay, not just like to have a different thought. <laughs> That's not like, oh, let me change my mind on the decision between having a Coke or a Pepsi. <laughs> it's it's about having a change of mindset. That's why we say it's a U-turn. It's about literally changing, going from one direction to another. Okay, so reconciliation is, in essence, a transformation, a change in us. We move from darkness to light. Our mindset goes from uh, an orientation from selfishness to humility, from darkness to light, from satisfying the ego to satisfying our brothers and worshiping God. Does that make sense? All right. So let's continue from the very next verse. Um, let's read from 23... And actually, 24 is a very loaded verse. I, let's just read verse 23. It's a long verse, but I think that one will be enough for us to meditate right there. So, who wants to just read that one verse for us? Chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, very good. Read, uh, read that one more time to yourself, and then after you, uh, you, you take a moment to read to yourself, we'll talk about So, he just concluded the previous verse, obviously in his remarks on reconciliation, in, 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 in affirming that, like, now that we're reconciled, we're blameless, right? We're blameless because we are in Christ, and his work is blameless, and we basically receive that, the, like, free gift right there. Like, we get it... 
We get a pass just because somebody else won on our behalf. Right? So he says, now that you're blameless, if indeed, like, no, there's no reproach or anything blameworthy in you, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under the heaven of which I, Paul, become a minister. So, if Christ has done this for you, what's left for you to do? Accept it. Wow. Accept it. And what does that look like for, for him? Like, what is the, the specific action that he wants you now to take to heart? Being rooted in the faith, be grounded in it. Perfect. Perfect. Like, be rooted, be grounded, right? He says, like, be unmovable. You know, a lot of times we talk about, um, like, running the race. We talk about striving. We talk about fighting, moving forward, right? Which is an important part of our, of our faith. Like, always fighting, always moving. Like, St. Paul even puts it as a race that you're running, right? So, obviously, if you're running a race, there's nothing stagnant about that. The word here that he uses for steadfast, it's... extraioi. Okay, so that literally means to be seated. It comes from the root word of seat, which is very ironic. Like halika, <laughs> just sit. <laughs> so what he's literally telling you to do now that God has done all this work in His Son, in Christ, you are reconciled. You are blameworthy. Uh, you are unblemished. You have, there's nothing blameworthy in you. What's left for you to do? Just sit on that seat that he purchased for you. Don't move. Alright? It's a very strange concept because we always put on our shoulders this burden of like, I gotta do this. I gotta do that. I gotta work. I gotta take the next step. Right? Like we're such a busy culture. We're always talking about what's my next move. Right? But this is the exact opposite. So... He says, be seated. What does that look like for us to just like be seated, to be grounded, practically speaking? You mean here for the faith? Like, okay, like yeah. so be, be rooted, be grounded in your faith. What does that look like? Do not be swayed by temptation. Very good, do not be swayed. What? What are the most common um, temptations or things that sway us, that like uh, dethrones us from this seat that we're supposed to just be seated on? Uncomfortable. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes that being in the same place is a little uncomfortable. Um, it requires patience. <laughs> um, like when we're very, very young, we don't really know how to stay still. We don't know how to sit still. Like if you see a child and like, you know, full of energy, you tell them like, sit still. It's like 
you're speaking a foreign language. <laughs> um, like like Jack and Cindy are like laughing because I'm like sure Jojo does not <laughs> does not know what that means, right? Um, and it's funny because like as we get older, it should improve. <laughs> we should be able to learn how to sit still, but sometimes it doesn't get any better, right? Sometimes like that patience is still not there. I've mentioned this example uh, to you before, but like the very, very first thing that comes to mind is um, St. Paul, the disciple of St. Anthony. Remember when he tells him to go cast out the demon? I've said this story to you a few times before. And he goes, says, okay, come out, I command you by the name of Christ, and the demon doesn't listen. He says, I command you by the name of St. Anthony, and Christ still listen. And, you know, just literally stands there. The heat of the day, his feet are like blistering. And he's like, okay, I'm just gonna hang out. I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna be patient. I'm gonna stay seated. Okay, and for us, it might not seem like a tough concept, but it really, really, really is challenging. It's challenging for someone to say, I'm not gonna be swayed. I'm not going anywhere. The whole world is telling me to give up. Um, the whole world is telling me to try other um, options. You know, the whole prayer thing that didn't work. Why don't you fight back? You know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know. Take your rights. Um, people say that the whole um, humility and forgiveness didn't work. You know, so why stick with it? Why are you staying grounded? And the same, why are you staying in the same, holding in the same position? And, and people don't really understand, but that's essentially what our faith is built on. It's built on that unwavering discipline to stay put. Um, for the monastics, this was actually like a virtue. Staying in the same place. And I'm not talking about conceptually. I'm not talking about don't bend your morals. I'm talking about just physically speaking, literally staying in the same place. <laughs> so almost always whenever a monk is struggling in his prayer life, the very first thing that would happen is the demons will come and say, like, you know, go out, take a breath of fresh air. <laughs> go visit the other brothers. Um, maybe go into town and just wander, you know, just take a little break, move around, just move. And for the monks, that would actually be the, the, the defeat in their fight right there. The victory is in not leaving, is in not moving. Abba Arsenio said, a tree cannot bear fruit if it's often transplanted. So it is with the monk. A tree cannot bear fruit if it's often transplanted. You know, if you uproot a tree, you literally can't plant it somewhere else. Okay? And the roots can grip in the new soil and it can grow and bear fruit. That's possible, you know. 
As a matter of fact, like when you go like buy a, a certain type of tree, like they'll take it out with it with the dirt and the roots and everything. If you keep doing that, then the roots start to like wither away. For us, we have to be rooted somewhere. We have to stay put. And, and that takes disciplines, it takes patience. But if we don't, we'll never see the fruit from this fight. Does that make sense? Any thoughts, comments right there? Alright, so he's going to elaborate on how tough that really is um, by just alluding to his own sufferings in the very next verse, which is probably one of the toughest verses um, in, in understanding and in applying out of everything that St. Paul has said, but... Question for you, man. Uh -huh. Sorry, before we move on. Yeah. Uh, in 23 it says, The gospel which you heard, from, which was preached to every creature under heaven, is it prophesizing that the gospel will be preached? Because at that time, obviously, the gospel has yet to be preached. Yeah, it's, it's actually exactly like... So, the commentary here, like, also alluded to the very, very beginning. In, in, in the beginning of the, of the chapter, remember? Um... Verse 6, verse 5 to 6, oh, yeah. okay. The hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So it, it is in a sense prophetic, um, but in a sense it's also just a reality that's, at hand because the death of Christ was like a cosmic event, right? And there, there wasn't a creature under heaven that wasn't affected by it. Okay, so the, the fact that Christ descended and preached in Hades through the cross goes to say, like, what soul didn't hear of the good news? He, every single soul from Adam to Christ heard. And so that's a part of what St. Paul's alluding to right there, too. Alright, so let's go... Can I have a question? Yeah. So it's a for which I, Paul, become a minister. But in the Arabic, it's khadim, like a servant. So why is it a difference? Uh, so, minister and servant are, are synonymous. Very, very close words. Okay, so let's go from verse 24 to 29. It's a pretty big section, um, but we'll, we'll split it up into uh, at least two, two or three little parts. Okay, so we can read 24 to 29 for us. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages, from generations, 
but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, according, uh, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that they may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Okay, very good. Read out one more time. You don't have to read the whole section. I wanted to make sure we kind of looked at it in context, but at least just focus on the beginning of those few verses, and then we'll talk about it. Alright, so verse 24 is like jam-packed enough. <laughs> Again, it's probably one of the most difficult in regards to understanding and applying. Um, but what, what are your thoughts just from the start? Right away, what's the first thought that comes to mind? It says, I, re I, re I rejoice in my suffering for you. And fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. So the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of, like, don't be bitter. <laughs> don't complain. Rejoice. Okay? Which, at, at, at its most basic interpretation, that's already like tough enough, right? <laughs> But there's more to it than that, of course, right? What else? Is he saying that he's going to continue what Christ started? Okay, perfect. So, he says that I will fill up in my flesh what is what? Lacking. Lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So does that imply... That there's something lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Like Jesus, he didn't get the job done, the cross, the suffering. <laughs> you know, he needed a few more steps. Let me take those last few steps for you. <laughs> well, the body of Christ, the church, he said that anyone that believes in him is going to have to suffer through things, right? So maybe he's saying that he's going to suffer on behalf of us by. Perfect. By his own suffering. Perfect. So. One can only understand this if, if one understands the unity of the body with the head. So the head has suffered, but that is only effective in as much as it radiates to the rest of the body. Does that make sense? So, of course, the sufferings, the afflictions of Christ were complete. Nothing like, like, he gave us salvation, case closed. <laughs> but, 
how much does that radiate into my life? If I, if I like, pick up that cross with him now and I continue to walk, then his sufferings continue in me. That makes sense? And he puts it in a very strange way because like he he emphasizes like the core of this whole concept by stressing the unity of the church from the very start. He says, I rejoice, I rejoice in my suffering for who? For myself or for you? For you. So that's a little strange, right? You can imagine I come I come over to your house like I hurt my neck today, so I'm happy for you. <laughs> it's really like my neck hurts, I'm happy for you. Or or like I hurt my knee, so I'm rejoicing for you. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. I rejoice in my suffering because in some mystical way, that's profitable to you. Now, that can only be the case if we are one and the same. Because if we're disconnected, what do my sufferings have to do with you, with you, and your sufferings have to do with me? We're totally different people. But for St. Paul, he, he understood very well that we are members of the same body. Right? If you think of just a person that's working on, on increasing his speed. Okay, so he's training for a marathon or whatever. If you improve the way your arm swing is moving during every single stride and your arms improve in their mechanics, do you think it will benefit the legs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. actually it will. Because it will take a little load off of the legs. Because now your mechanics are better. So whenever the arms have to work a little bit harder, it suffers. You know, you could look at it that way. There's a little bit of work. There's a little bit of suffering. There's a cross that the arms have to carry. But what does that do for the legs? Exactly. Because it's the same body. Because he didn't understand suffering as a punishment. So I suffer, I get stronger. I get stronger, I'm happy for you because we're the same body. You suffer, you get stronger, I'm going home celebrating. You just made me stronger. It's a very, very strange concept, but that's the heart of our faith. Heart of our faith is union with Christ, and it is only made possible, the joy of the resurrection is only made possible through the cross. Almost every part of our life now is geared towards increasing our comfort. When you're shopping for a car, What's the most comfortable car? When you're shopping for a house, what's going to be the most comfortable house? Whenever you're going out to dinner, right? What's the most pleasant meal? You want to find the most comfortable restaurant. Everything that we do, medical care, 
right? We want to reduce the amount, of, the amount of pain our body experiences. And that, that's not evil. That's not. But what happens, almost always, it subconsciously trickles into our spiritual life. And then what we almost always want to do is find the easy way out in our spiritual struggles. Say, ah, this is going to require a little bit of work. This is going to hurt a little. This is going to cause me some suffering. And there's now like an aversion to suffering. Because in every... If, if I'm unwilling to suffer physically, if I'm unwilling to suffer in... in my work, in, in my diet, if I want to lose weight, in whatever areas in my life. Now it comes to standing up to pray. I, I don't want to suffer, because that's going to be somewhere. Or serving. I don't want to deal with people that are going to be dramatic, so I don't want to suffer. Now, that unwillingness to suffer prevents my growth. It prevents my improvement. And if the arms are unwilling to work harder and get stronger and improve their mechanics or whatever, the legs aren't going to benefit. Okay? So, in a sense, there is like an obligation towards one another. If What happens if I'm unwilling to suffer? What does that do for you? It sets an example. It sets an example for one. So you might also get a little bit lazy, but even without you following my example, you're already affected by my own lack of growth, right? So that causes you to regress. So we don't look at it that way, but if we truly realized the power of our unity, that we are interconnected in that way, we would say, I can't shy away from this cross, because if I don't pick up this cross, I'll be failing the world. I'll be failing my brothers. It's a very tough concept, but that's Christianity. I spoke to you guys a couple of days about uh, a couple of days ago about my uh, interaction with um, with Father Lazarus in St. Anthony, the, the Australian monk. And uh, I remember this from one of the interviews. This isn't from our conversation when when I spoke to him. So it's, it's actually recorded. You can see this on one of the episodes. But he says, like he held out his hand like this in the interview. And he says, "In me, humanity lives." If I pray, humanity lives. If I don't pray, humanity dies. So it's just like, all of that because whether you pray or not. <laughs> but he realized, like, in as much as Christ is alive in him, Christ is alive in humanity. Because Christ will inevitably radiate to him. So if I'm not shining any light, to you, I leave you in darkness. And I hurt you. So the best thing I can do for you is pick up my cross. That's why St. Paul starts out saying, I now rejoice in my suffering for you. I rejoice in my suffering for you. 
He's writing in prison. And he's rejoicing for their sake that he's in prison. This isn't something philosophical or something theoretical. This is real. He's actually in prison. He's actually suffering. And we, we know that, that the prison epistles were full of joy. Right? I spoke to you about how many times he says the word joy in Philippians. He says it here quite a bit as well, but he wasn't sad or depressed whenever he had to pick up the cross. Okay. Now, if we move on to the very next part, it says, I rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. If the work of Christ not, does not translate to us, then he even says elsewhere, then his grace towards me was in vain. Remember? I think 1 Corinthians, I don't remember exactly, but he says, I, oh yes, I think 1 Corinthians uh, 15. He says, I am who I am by the grace of God, but his grace towards me was not in vain but I labored much more than that. So, His grace can come in vain. You know, somebody gives you a gift, gives you an open door to walk in and experience this relationship with Christ, but you say, uh, I don't want to go that way. Right? Then you miss out. And what He's saying right here is, we might miss out. Because now we got to continue walking. There's something lacking in the experience. I don't get to experience Christ just because He died for me. I don't get to experience the joy of walking with Him just because He died for me. When I am willing to pick up the cross with Him and walk with Him, is when I get to see Him face to face. Remember... Um, Simon the Cyrene, whenever, like this Jew just walking along, they compelled him to carry the cross with Christ, right? Christ, as a human being, he, he, he couldn't continue. He was like, just like half dead, can barely walk, right? So, he had to walk over pick up the cross with this criminal thinking that he's finishing the job that this man is supposed to be entrusted with, right? This man has to carry the cross. And I love in The Passion of Christ, they, they like emphasize how, in the movie, The Passion of Christ, emphasize how like he wanted nothing to do with associating with this criminal. He says, I want everybody to know that he's the criminal. I'm just an innocent man forced to help this criminal. Right? We gotta get that clear, right? Because I don't want my reputation to be affected by this. And then he says, now that we're clear, fine, I'll go. So they can follow him, he went and he cared. This is exactly the, the type of role we enter into. Whenever we say, okay, I'm gonna just tag along. I'm gonna tag along. Like, Christ is the one overcame that. Like me can, completing this work is just more so like a metaphor.
metaphorical way to put it. Not completing anything. He's carrying me, he's carrying the whole world. Okay? Make sense? What is it? So it's so there's not it's not necessarily lacking in the sufferings of Christ because there's nothing that's lacking, it's what's lacking on my end. Exactly. Right. It's it's lacking in that synergy. Right, yeah, but that's coming from my not necessarily from his yeah. suffering, so his sufferings are exactly. complete. Exactly. Exactly. St. Augustine says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, like in quoting this specific verse, and fill up in my flesh what's lacking in afflictions of Christ. He didn't say of the afflictions of me, but of Christ. Right? So this is what always raises our eyes. And he explains it, he says, because he was a member of Christ, and in his persecutions, such as it was necessary for Christ to suffer in his whole body, even Paul was filling up Christ's afflictions in Paul's own portions. So, Paul recognized his union with Christ. So he says, what is lacking in me is something that can translate to Christ himself. Although I'm the one that's lacking, but because I am in him, he identifies this suffering as lacking in Christ. Although we technically know, like that's technically not the case. Right? But what's lacking in me, Christ made his own. Right? So when I find something lacking in me, I can turn to Christ and say, Jesus, I know you identify with what's lacking in me. I know you identify with my weaknesses, and you're making what's lacking, you're making these weaknesses that I have your own right now. And that's what, what would serve as, as St. Paul's fuel in, in binding him to Christ. Christ, Christ doesn't look at us whenever we're lacking something and you say, I carried the cross, I did my part, this is yours. <laughs> right? So, it's definitely a spiritual application in, in regards to what, what Jack was asking. In a sense, we can say that Christ can look at what's lacking in me and make it his own. Not because there's technically anything lacking in him, but because he wants to identify with me. Just because he loves me, he cares for me, and he doesn't want me to experience this burden apart from him. Make sense? Are any comments or questions there? Again, he concludes that verse, he says, for the sake of his body, which is the church, just again to reiterate that what's happening in me is for the sake of the whole church, for the sake of the world. It's all about unity. In the very next verse, he says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. What does that mean? God has entrusted me with this responsibility for your sake. Perfect. Perfect. 
I am responsible for this ministry. He's taking full responsibility for it. And, and because I'm responsible, I'm going to take it seriously. Because I have been appointed. Like, to, he didn't consider this title as an apostle as like, uh, like a privilege or some sort of uh, title he could just wave around for his own publicity or, you know, for his own reputation. He says, this is something that I have to use for service. This is something that compels me to serve you. Not to parade my title, but to offer myself to you in service. So the mystery which has been, which has been hidden from ages, from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So we can ask ourselves what this mystery really is, which has been hidden from angels, from, from ages and, and from generations. What is that mystery? The unity in Christ. Okay, unity in Christ. What else? I heard something else. We can look at what St. Paul is referring to in a dynamic sense. It, we can look at it in a mystical sense. You, like This mystery is not just a single concept, right? So what Jack just said, absolutely, unity of Christ is a part of this ministry. The, the reconciliation that he spoke about. This, this is mysterious. How we are blameless. That's mysterious. How I can participate in the sufferings of Christ. Which is a grace beyond all grace. Like for me to say like I can walk in His footsteps. That is a mystery that no one can really explain. So all of that, the mysterious nature of life with Christ, of of receiving that salvation and committing to life with Him, experiencing life with Him. He says, this is what was hidden from the ages and is now revealed to who? To us, to the saints. No one really knew what union with Christ really meant until it was made possible through the cross and the resurrection right um, we say in the hymn Pioik, the bread of life there's a verse about how that which on an altar is hidden from the cherubim and the seraphim right but we behold you on the altar. So, from 
from all generations, from all the ages, this mystery was hidden from all the heavenly hosts. And even until now, how we can unite with Christ, experience Christ, live with Christ. And again, this is as clear as it gets because he's saying what was hidden and is not revealed is what's granted to who? The saints. How are the saints saints? Through him. Yeah, through union with him, through partaking of his Eucharist. So, this, this life in Christ, how Christ is the center, he's everything, he's all in all. That, that partaking of his body and his blood is eternal life. This is that which was hidden and revealed to us. Okay? Any comments or questions there? So he says, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right, so this is what he revealed. In a sense, he kind of answers what that mystery is all about right there. To them, God willed to make known. So he revealed. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? Okay, the Gentiles are the outcasts, right? Every time you hear the word Gentile, you think of what? Not Jewish. Yeah, well, actually the Jews were not, not Jewish, right? The Jews, the Jews were the people of God. If you're not a Jew, you're automatically a Gentile. Okay? Samaritans, um, everybody else. Pagans, Romans, Gentiles, Gentiles, Gentiles. Okay? So, what he says is, the outcasts were the ones that had, had, had no idea what life with Christ was. They didn't experience that. It wasn't made known to them. But now... Christ has become the, 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 the agent of reconciliation for, for all, right? The one who's reconciled, both Jews and Gentiles. He says, which is in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, to this end, I also labor, striving accordingly to his work, which works in me mightily. Right, so this little part is, is also loaded. Um, let's just dissect what's really going on in the last two verses. I think we're, we're all good up until verse 27, right? Right? Okay, so in 28 and 29, read it one more time. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Alright. There's so many questions I just want to throw out, so I want to 
the logo? Yeah. Good, good. Which one? 29 or 20? 28. 28? Him we preach? Presenting every man for Very good. Good, so did they talk about their, uh, their, their, their slogan at all or no? Not just as they say it. They just repeat it every time? <laughs> They've never done a series on it? But how did you know that? You, you go to the same church, like... No, well, because I'm, it was a... I've never done uh, any uh, work with them. <laughs> but they, they I have done a commercial for them one time, though. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so... The first thing I want to ask you is what is his purpose? Like what is the end of all his work? The final goal? To present to bring Perfect. Everybody just put it all together. <laughs> To present every man perfect. To present every man perfect, yeah. to have salvation, and again, it's it's because he sees him and the church as one, right? So for him, he wants to see the whole body come to know Christ, and and to be in Christ, to have a relationship with Christ. So that salvation is his end goal. Does that make sense? He says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Alright, now, if you look at the way he wants to present every man, he uses a very strange word, which... Like, I harp on this every time it comes up. But, he says that we may present every man what? Complete. Somebody said complete, but that's not what it says, even though it's Perfect. what it should say. <laughs> Perfect. 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 Now, you said complete. Were you reading it in Arabic and then just translated it on your own? I can't. Yeah. You're brilliant. <laughs> um... Because that's literally what the word is. Okay, so you remember what what the Greek for this word is? No. You heard me harp on this like a million times. Okay. What's the Greek? Okay. Give us a hand. <laughs> it's like two syllables. <laughs> Telios. Okay, Telios. And other translations, I think the Revised Standard Version, I'm not sure about the rest, but many other translations say that we present every man complete in Christ Jesus. Because technically, like there isn't a word perfect. Um, I, I was really digging into this throughout the whole epistle because the word complete does come elsewhere. Um, I think in verse 
9 of the next chapter. You, you are complete in Him. And uh, uh, again, in the rest of it, but the point is, I, I went back to see, well, is it like the same word? One time they chose to translate it as perfect, one time they chose to translate it as complete. Well, what's the deal? But actually, it was a completely different word for the complete. <laughs> but like fullness, right. Is, it, is that what it says in your... Well, in, uh, in chapter, in verse 9 of the next chapter. Yes, and you're complete in Him. That, in other translations, is translated as you're full. Uh, for in him dwells all fullness of the Godhead bodily. Oh no, the, sorry, verse 10, not 9. Oh, and you are, what does yours say? And you are complete. In you are complete. So other versions will, will use the translation of full. Because the word here is not teleos. In, in verse 10. So we'll come back to get into it when we, when we move on to the next chapter. But the point is... When, when, when you, like, look at the etymology, this word doesn't mean that something, it is flawless, something that is, like, as, as w what we would define as perfect. Perfect is one thing, complete is really a totally different thing. Hmm. I think the modern version of perfect is not what they mean here. I think what they mean is, or what he means is, perfect as in it's not missing anything. Exactly. That's, that's what he really does mean. Right? But what I want to stress is that word doesn't perfect, in a sense, doesn't exist in Greek. It doesn't exist in many other languages. Like in, in Arabic, the word perfect doesn't exist. If you were trying to say something is perfect, you would describe it as complete. Right? How about this? Well done? Well done, it was not a statement. Like, like whenever you look at the Arabic verse for uh, be perfect, it says kunu kamilun. Right? Kunu kamilun. That's literally what. No, but it's Okay, so now, what the application of this really comes down to. What St. Paul is trying to stress, and I think the reason why this word doesn't really occur in the original Greek and in other languages, because it's not so much as a matter of perfection as what we would describe it. It's about being completed. It's about really being grafted. It's about being a part of something that consumes us, that, that, in a sense, just infuses our whole life so that all you see is the greater part. Does that make sense? So, so when I am in Christ, who is seen? My sins or the perfection of Christ? Christ and His perfection. Because He completes what is lacking in me. If you go back to what we just spoke about in regards to his, the, the, the sufferings or the afflictions that he says are lacking in Christ, it really goes back to this concept where if I am in Him, 
whatever is lacking in me is completed by him. And in that sense, I can be presented as blameless. In that sense, I can be presented as quote-unquote perfect. My imperfections, always, 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 are that which is apart from Christ. If whatever is um, weak is in Christ, it's perfect. If whatever is missing is Christ, then it's perfected. You think of whatever imperfection, whatever flaw, if that is brought to Christ, it's transformed. So if my whole self is in Christ, my whole self is transformed to be all that He is. And it's, again, this isn't like something philosophical. Really think of it as basic as possible. You think of like my own laziness. That's a flaw. That's an imperfection. When I take that and offer it at His feet, that laziness becomes what we just spoke about, steadfastness, perseverance. If you look at every other flaw, if I present it to Christ, it's completed by Him. Whatever is weak is strengthened by Him. That's why... Um, Second Corinthians, when St. Paul is talking about the thorn in his flesh, and he prays three times, what does God respond saying? Perfect. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So you're weak, but you're not going to see your own weaknesses if it's in me. You're going to hold on to me because now you realize you're in incapabilities. Like, God, I can't do this. I've tried. I, I'm lazy. I'm, I'm weak. I, I just don't have the wisdom to make these decisions the right way, to go left or to go right or whatever. But if I really acknowledge that that's the case, I hold on to Christ and then I open the door for His perfection and I become complete in Him. So, it's just beautiful because everything that St. Paul is talking about is being in Him. Being in Him. Reconciliation is only possible in as much as we are in Him. Being blameless is only possible in as much as we are in Him. So being perfect, being complete, is only possible in as much as we are in Him. It goes back to Christ being all in all. Christ is everything. Okay. So we can continue to elaborate on some closing remarks and um, on this verse next week if there's still some more thoughts on your mind. But let's just take a moment to um, to meditate any sort of practical application that we want uh, to think about, and then uh, we'll pray. Just one or two minutes to to really meditate and pray for um, whatever God wants us to focus on in our own practical application. And glory be to God forever. Amen.